Thank you, Franco. God bless you guys. It's wonderful to be here with you this evening. Tonight I'm going to be getting into a topic that honestly I, I'm, uh, sort of, sort of ashamed that I haven't spent more time looking at this topic in God's word through the years. Maybe some of you coming from similar background just took this topic of the fear of the Lord and, you know, I was given a, a one word, one sentence explanation of it and, you know, that it just means reverence and I just, you know, stuck that in everywhere I read it and let it go at that. But there's a great deal that God's word has to say about the fear of the Lord. And uh, since I have been studying it, I have, uh, I have developed a much greater appreciation for what the fear of the Lord is and the value it is in the life of the Christian. Uh, bottom line, it comes down to this, and that is that all other fears of life become meaningless in the presence of the fear of the Lord. When the fear of the Lord is there, all other fears vanish. It's a cleansing and powerful attitude of heart to hold. Uh, one of the books that I've come across recently that has been a great blessing to me is a book written by a fellow by the name of John Bevere, B-E-V-E-R-E, John Bevere. He wrote a book called The All, A-W-E, The All of God, and it is a terrific book. But in recent days, especially since the last time that I was blessed to share with everyone, um, I have been specifically focused on this topic of the fear of the Lord. And it, it sort of came up the last time I taught, so I want to review where I taught the last time, the, the closing on, on, uh, comments, and then move forward into what I believe the Lord has for us tonight. So uh, at the end of the last time that I shared, I taught about Acts 2:41 to 47, about the fellowship of the believers, and we'll read that. Uh, this is, of course, the day of Pentecost, and the day of Pentecost that uh, Peter stood up and, and gave his fantastic sermon there in the temple, and the people believed, about 3,000 believed, and then this is the conclusion of what happened with those believers. It says in Acts 2:41 to 47, then those who received his word were baptized, and in that day there were added to their number about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And fear came on every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And what we looked at the last time was these four elements of their lifestyle, of their new Christian lifestyle that they had devoted themselves to, which was the apostles' teaching, which would be whatever, uh, instruction and doctrine that Christ had taught them because that's all they had at that time. So the apostles teaching to the fellowship, which is the, of course, the common, uh, sharing, the full sharing of their lives, the mutual sharing of their lives with one another, uh, the breaking of bread as a part of that. And some, some scholars believe that has to do with the, uh, following of the Lord's supper uh, others say it's, it's just a communal dinner. Either way, it makes no difference. They were together and they were breaking bread and to prayer. But the thing that really caught my eye 
was that it says the next verse, and fear came on every soul, and many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. And the thing that first thing that that struck me was that it says fear came. Fear came. It wasn't something that they developed themselves, but it was it was a result. It was a byproduct. It's sort of like uh, in the same manner when you, you know, we've all read Romans 10, 17, where it says, wherefore faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God, right? Faith comes. Faith is not something that we stir up within ourselves. It comes as a result of hearing the word of God. The more word we hear, the easier the faith is to bring forth. Well, likewise here. These believers, as they continued in these activities, suddenly fear came upon them. And look what the result was of this fear. Once the result of when this fear came, it says, and then many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And it made me think, well, maybe we're reason we don't see so many wonders and signs in the Christian world today is maybe we're the fear hasn't arrived in our lives. Maybe we haven't developed this godly fear. And the other question that then comes to mind is, well, why doesn't it say that joy was upon every soul or peace was upon every soul? The word of God is very specific. It says fear came upon every soul. We can imagine any number of outcomes of what these people's lives who were freshly experiencing the power of salvation and the transformation, but the thing that showed up and the thing that made a difference was the fear of the Lord. Look then what happens next. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them among all as anyone had need. And day after day, continuing with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, They were receiving their food with great joy and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And day after day, the Lord was adding to them those who were being saved. So here again, we see, you know, as a result of this fear of the Lord that had come into their lives, we had the signs and wonders. They then continued on and and look what fear produced. It produced unity. They were together. It produced generosity. They were selling their possessions and dividing them. It brought a common passion for obeying God. They were with one accord. That's a great study sometime if you ever want to study it. That's actually one Greek word, homothumidon, and it means with one burning passion. They were one passion for obeying God with one accord in the temple. Uh, and it, and it, their religion, which had been formerly temple based, was now becoming house to house. It was joy without uh, obstruction. You know, they had joy and sincerity of heart with great joy. And that word sincerity of heart, by the way, it means without stoniness, without a stony ground, like the stony ground that Jesus talked about where the seed fell on stony ground. They had joy without any obstacles in their lives. They praised directed toward God and not toward men. You know, in the Jewish religion at that time, much of the praise, Jesus was often 
critical of the Pharisees because they enjoyed the praise of men. Well, these people, because of the fear of the Lord, their praise had learned to be directed not toward men, but toward God. And then it says, the Lord added to their numbers. You know, Christ has told them, I will build my church, right? And he added. And and so often I see and have been a part of Christian organizations where I feel like there is so much of an overemphasis on attempting to grow the, the, the group, you know, to, to grow the church, to get more members, to go out there and, and bring them in, you know, and there's a place for sharing the gospel. Sure. We should be a witness everywhere we go all the time to anyone, but it's not our job to build the church. You recall Paul says in Corinthians that I planted meaning I, I taught the word and Apollos watered, but what God gave the increase, the actual growth came from God, and that's the way it should be. But all of these are occurrences in the lives of those believers after, after the fear of the Lord had come upon them. This is a, a beautiful summary of how the Lord can work in the lives of his people when we live with the fear of the Lord. Now, the problem that has developed in, in, in many people's lives is that on the one hand, there's hundreds of verses that tell us to not have fear, to fear not, don't fear, fear not. But yet there's also hundreds of verses that say we should have the fear of the Lord. So it seems contradictory that these, how can we have fear, not have fear? What is this all about? Well, a good example of this and a perfect illustration we'll see in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 20, uh, if you want to take your Bible and flip there or your flip phone or whatever you're using, uh, after God by the hand of Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai to reveal himself to them. And first Moses went up the mountain a couple times and he, he received the Ten Commandments. And when he went down the mountain, the people were frightened of God. And we'll pick it up in verse 18. And this is just after Moses has received the Ten Commandments. And it says in verse 18, all the people saw the thunderings, the lightnings, the sound of the shofar and the mountains smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stayed at a distance. They said to Moses, you speak with us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak with us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come to test you so that the fear of him will be with you so that you will not sin. The people stayed at a distance and Moses drew near to the to the thick darkness where God was. So this sounds almost like a contradiction, but notice in that verse 20, Moses said, don't fear, but fear. <laughs> you see that? Don't be afraid, but yet fear. And it's because there's two different things here. We have an, we have an unhealthy fear, which is a fear of, of the, uh, capricious or the uh, um, the the arbitrary 
evil or bad that may come upon us. Moses says, don't have that kind of fear because God is here to test you so that you will fear him with the right kind of godly fear so that you will not sin. Now, this is a beautiful truth here. Moses didn't want the people to fear that God was going to harm them, but rather he was testing them so that they would fear him and thus not sin. See, when we have fear, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord will protect us from sin. It keeps us from sin. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? What was the first thing that they did after they realized that they had sinned? They heard the voice of God that says walking in the garden, right? And they, what? Hid themselves. They went and hid themselves. Sin will pull us away from God. The fear of God, the the awe of God's almighty power and his goodness will draw us to him. In the REV commentary, I'm going to read you a bit here. Uh, in the commentary of Proverbs 1-7, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It, this is what is written about the fear of Yahweh. The Hebrew word fear is yerah, and it's got a wide semantic range. Its meanings range from terror, fear, being afraid, respect, reverence, and all. And sometimes all those meanings are in one context because it is possible to be afraid of something and yet reverence it and hold it in awe at the same time. Now you, you may remember, uh, this, this, when I read this, I immediately, my mind, I, I reflected on Romans 13, three, where it's talking about, uh, authorities. Okay. Governmental authorities. And it says that, uh, he, Paul said that those who do good have no cause to fear authorities, right? If you're doing the right thing, you've got no reason to fear. So although it's common today for Christians to believe that to fear God only means to respect him or to hold him in awe, this is not correct. It is not being honest with the text or with the cultural context and social social history of the phrase, the fear of Yahweh. Historically, people absolutely feared God in the sense that they were genuinely afraid of him. This is because God was both a God of blessing and a God of judgment. He has both characters, folks. He's not just one way. The fact of the reason that respect God is biblically phrased as fearing God or the fear of God, though, was that the respect for God was rooted in the fear. If you do not respect God, you have a good reason to fear him. Hebrews 10.31 is another great reference on this, and it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is not to be dealt with in a trite manner. He's not just someone that we can just arbitrarily, you know, flippantly devote ourselves to. He expects our obedience. He expects our worship. And that is not a joke. 
Evidences. What are some evidences of people, of why people should fear God? Well, we see all kinds in the scriptures. How about uh, Noah's flood? Judgment, right? Sodom and Gomorrah? Judgment. Uh, the plagues of Egypt? Judgment. The death of Aaron's sons when they attempted to bring in the, the, uh, strange fire into the tabernacle and they were killed immediately. Although the New Testament, we don't often see disobedience to bring harsh and immediate consequences. There are consequences. Those consequences can be very serious. God does not threaten us, but he rather lovingly and honestly warns us the way a concerned parent warns a child. For example, he tells us that the unsaved will be thrown into the lake of fire. He doesn't want that to happen, but he honors our choice to live and die as he always has. Remember, it says in Deuteronomy 30, 19, remember at the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses was at the very end of his life, and he said, I set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life that you may live, you and your seed. It is our choice to obey and be blessed or disobey and receive consequences. A problem we have today with the word fear is that it's seldom understood because it's not often used in the context of the healthy fear of a righteous judge. We fear things that can hurt us, like cancer, like wild animals, uh, thieves at night. You know, we have fears of things like that. Or we fear things that we don't understand, like death. But God is different than those. He is not unpredictable. In fact, he is quite the opposite. He's very predictable, and he cannot lie. God will not hurt us unexpectedly, and if we do not know much about him, that's only because we've not really taken the time to learn about him. He says in Jeremiah 4.22, my people are fools. They do not know me. A reason to fear God is that he is the most high God and he will punish evil and disobedience, just as he has said over and over and over in his word. But because God is righteous and is predictable and does not lie, we do not have to have an unhealthy fear of him or of judgment day. It is not hard to love and obey God. As Jesus said, my yoke is gentle and my burden is light, right? So it's not a hard thing. The Bible, especially the New Testament, reveals that the character of God and shows us he's loving and worthy of our love. However, the Bible also reveals that God is righteous and just and that the disobedient and rebellious will receive consequences for their ungodly behavior. And it's wise to be afraid of those consequences. Therefore, we should fear God. So the two fears 
can be simply understood as this. Unhealthy fear is to fear anything or anyone who may bring us harm in an arbitrary and capricious manner. Healthy fear, the fear of the Lord, is being acutely aware of the consequences of our individual attitudes and behaviors, which we will be held accountable before a righteous judge. Jesus, in fact, interpreted worship as fear. Go to Matthew chapter 4, and I'll show you this. And in verse 8, it says again, The devil took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, I will give all these things to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away, adversary, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now, the thing is, that's a quote. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.13. So now flip back to Deuteronomy 6.13. And let's read it. In Deuteronomy 6.13, it says, You are to fear Yahweh, your God, and you are to serve him and are to swear by his name. Where Deuteronomy says, fear Yahweh, Jesus rightly said it is worship, worship. From this verse and many others, we can begin to see that there's a close association between the fear of the Lord and true worship. Worship from a Hebrew understanding always involved a position of the body more so than an inclination of the heart. Again, I want to read from the REV commentary. The word worship is the word shakha, and it means to bow down or to prostrate oneself. It's used of bowing down in homage or worship before a superior. And so in the Bible, we see people bowing down before or worshiping other people, angels, pagan gods, and the true God. It's helpful to the Bible student if the gesture of bowing down is understood. It was commonly done by falling to one's knees and then bowing the upper body to the earth, face to the ground, or in a a lesser fashion, by falling to your knees and bowing the upper body toward the earth, supported by your hands. This former way is still the way that the Muslims worship in mosques all over the world today. However, in some contexts, shahak could be a full prostration, lying flat on the ground. Sometimes it's difficult to discern whether it's bow down or worship. In the best translations, but the choice is easy. It is simply to bow down as in this act of surrender. It's hugely important to understand that in the ancient world, the action of bowing down was the worship. And what was going on in the mind of the person who was bowing down didn't change the fact that worship or bowing down had occurred. Many people who worshiped God by bowing before him were ignorant of his word and were ignoring his commandments. Many others who worshiped loved him and gladly obeyed his commandments. But both people scripturally were said to be worshiping God. 
The problem with the word worship is that what it meant in the ancient world is completely different from what it means today in our modern Western world. In the ancient world, worship meant to bow down before a person or a God, and it had nothing to do with why the person was bowing down. It could be out of love, it could be out of fear, or just show for the reason one was worshiping. Bowing down did not change the action. The person was worshiping because they were bowing down. In contrast, worshiping in our modern culture has nothing to do with action. It's a mindset. Western Christians worship God in all kinds of situations. For instance, when we pray at home in our mind, when we read our Bible and think good thoughts about God, when we go to church, listen to a preacher, when we sing songs about God, but none of these things would be considered worship by an ancient Israelite or even an ancient pagan. If a modern Christian hated God but bowed down before an altar in church just for show, an ancient Israelite would look at that person's action and say that person was worshiping God, while a modern Christian would look at the person's heart and say the person was not worshiping God. This shows up in verses in which the Bible says the people were worshiping by bowing down, even though from the context of the verse we can see that their heart was not in their worship. And a good illustration of this, if you'll recall, remember the remember the uh the military officer, I think his name was Naaman, who came to Elisha and had leprosy, and, and Elisha had him go and and wash in the river Jordan seven times, and he came up and his skin was totally healed. And remember he said to Elisha, he said, The Lord be kind to me or merciful to me that when I go into the house of Raman with my master and I bow to worship that he doesn't count it against me. Remember that? So that's a good example of how the act was still worship. The act was still bowing down, but he was saying, look, I want God to look at my heart. Ancient people would look at what occurs in modern churches today and ask, when are these people going to worship? <laughs> uh, ancient people would not see going to church, singing, listening to a person teach the Bible as worship. To them, worship involved physical activity and submissive action. That explains why the same Hebrew word is used of bowing down in homage before people and before God. People worshiped God, gods and superiors in the same way by bowing down before them. This isn't meant to degrade God in any way. It simply points out to people to how people showed respect to their superiors, including other people in God, by bowing down or prostrating before them. Bowing to the ground in respect did not change in the biblical world in Israel between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remember when the diseased man came to Jesus and he bowed down before him in the same physical way that Abraham had bowed down 2,000 years earlier, and that's in in Luke chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 2, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar, when he was astounded by Daniel's interpretation of his dreams, it says he worshiped, he fell prostrate before Daniel. 
The fact that people used to worship God by bowing down with their chest and their face to the ground when they were in the presence of God is simply not done today. But maybe it should. James Jordan wrote the following. Ancient man bowed down before his God, whether it was the God of nature, Baalism, or the creator, Yahweh. Modern man does not bow before his God, whether humanism or Christ. Similarly, for ancient men, the heart of religious exercise was adoration, worship, prostration, sacrament, which is a, a fellowship meal or a, or a uh, yeah, I guess that's the best way to describe it, a fellowship meal with their God. This was also true for Israel before the Lord and the Canaanites before Baal. And this is the biblical view of worship. Preaching and proclamation is the word of God, which leads to a response of adoration, prostration, and sacrament. The modern Christian, however, sees the heart of worship as entertainment. From a choir, an entertaining preacher, a philosophical meditation from a scholarly preacher, the sermon, instead of leading into worship, has itself become the climax of worship. And just as the modern Christian view of worship is not much more than studying doctrine, we don't see Christians bowing down to the Lord either. But we do see them studying him and preaching about him and writing books about him. So there's a big difference between the ancient religions and the modern ones. But listen to this line. Ancient man primarily worshipped his gods. Modern man primarily studies his gods. This is true both in pagan religions and in conservative Orthodox Christianity. A good case could be made for the value of physically bowing down before God. When done with the right heart, it demonstrates humility to the one who is greater than oneself which should lead us to obedience. Many modern Christians walk out of a sermon with no intention of changing what they do or how they live. For them, going to church is an intellectual exercise only. Of course, prostrating self, oneself before God could also become just more physical activity. But we wonder if it could help people stay focused on who is the Lord and who is not. That's the fear of the Lord. So I have some questions for all of us. Have you ever feared God's judgment? We should. Have you ever prostrated yourself before the Lord in absolute humility? We should. Look at Philippians chapter two. You know, there's people who say, well, you know, that whole fear of the Lord thing, that was all Old Testament stuff. That was all, that was all the God of the, listen, God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. People change. God doesn't. You go to studying this and you're going to see that it's all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures. What happened to John? Jesus is, you know, the, the apostle that Jesus loved. Right? 
when he saw Jesus and wrote the book of Revelation, what did he do? It says he fell at his feet. What happened to Isaiah when he came into the presence of the Lord? When he came into the presence of the Lord and he and God showed him the magnitude of his glory in heaven, he says, I'm a man undone. I am undone. I'm over with. You know, I listen. I know God is a loving father. But, you know, he's also God. And I'm not. Philippians 2 verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's church epistles, folks. That's not Deuteronomy. That's Philippians. At at first, this statement may seem a little out of place. Because we think, you know, salvation, well, it's, it's a joyous gift. Ephesians 2, 8, right? It's, it's a gift. It's not a grueling task. But Paul's reasoning for why this outworking of our salvation or living as a Christian is to be done in fear and trembling is because God is at work within us. It says in the very next verse to will and to do of his good pleasure, not our good pleasure, his good pleasure. Doing God's will is not light or an unimportant thing. God's presence should spark a sense of awe and reverence and complete humility in us. In fact, the Old Testament, an extremely common expression is that people feared God. You'll recall in Acts chapter 10, when the Lord came and spoke to Peter as he was on the rooftop, right? And he said for him to go with these guys when they showed up. And they said, what does it say about him? That Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile. God-fearing Gentile. See, he wasn't even a Jew. He was the first Gentile. But the one thing that had gotten God's attention was that he was God-fearing. He saw his rightful position. I'm not God. He is. I am a God-fearing man. This is not a fear that God is evil or a tyrant, but it's a healthy fear of realizing God's supreme greatness and power and the fact that he absolutely will execute justice on this earth. Thus, it can be rightly said that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I exhort you to take this message and sit before the Lord in silence. Don't go and crack open your Bible and turn on a bunch of music or, you know, do, do, the things that you normally do in your routine. Get quiet. Get alone. And ask the Lord to reveal in your heart what this fear of the Lord is. As a man, I cannot begin 
to comprehend the magnitude of God's power or of his authority. No man can stand in the presence of God. No man can teach God. And, you know, I hear people do that all the time. I hear people trying to tell God what he needs to do. How about this one? Thy will be done. (laughs) I like that one better. That's an easier prayer for me. Rather than me trying to steer God and tell him what he should do, I prefer your will be done, Lord. I'll support it. I'm with you. I'm for you. I know you're a good God. I trust you. But I hear people all the time telling, well, God do this and God do that and God do this. I mean, I know that there's people who get revelation and God tells them to speak something in order for it to come to pass. I'm not doubting that. But I think sometimes we can get overboard with that. We can get overboard with thinking that we have the power and authority to direct God. No, we don't. He's still God. We are his created people. Well, I want to close with one final verse. And this verse is written by who the scripture says was the wisest man who ever lived. And that was King Solomon. Solomon wrote more about wisdom and fear and reverence than probably anybody else in the book of Proverbs. But he also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he looks at everything that life has to offer, both the good and the bad, the, the lovely and the ugly and all the different things about life. And he goes through all these things and he keeps saying they're all, well, the English word is translated vanity, but what it really means is they are, they're like a vapor. Okay. They're, they're short lived. They go away quickly. They, they, they're not everlasting. And he gets to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole purpose of humankind. For God will bring everything we do into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. God bless you. Thank you.